0: Now, let's uh, turn back to the text that we read this morning, and we'll turn specifically to the text itself uh, tonight, Ephesians, and chapter 5, page 1346. And uh, reading at verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, in your heart, or, or remember that means in the Greek language, plucking the strings of your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I've uh, mentioned this morning already, we're just taking a break for a couple of weeks from our studies on uh, First Corinthians and the book of Daniel. And we'll return to these next Lord's Day. And we're breaking from them just to consider these two questions that visitors ask so often in the church. That is, why do we not use musical instruments? And why do we sing only the Psalms? And uh, today we've been looking at uh, why we only sing the Psalms or the book of psalms that God has given for singing. I don't think anyone can deny that God has given us such a book for singing. The question is, why do we sing that and that alone? You remember that the underlying principle behind everything that we do, and it should lie behind everything any Reformed church does, the underlying principle is that in every act of worship, We only offer to God what he has asked for. We don't presume to give him anything that he hasn't asked for. He specifies the terms of entrance into his presence and what we do, what offer we offer, what offering we offer, and how we offer it. That is up to him to specify. Clearly, in worship, He has commanded us to sing psalms. That's all that we find sung by the church under the Old Covenant or the Old Testament church. That's all that they sang in their synagogues. It's all that they sang in their temple right up until the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And uh, we find psalms sung in the New Testament too. And for the first 400 years, nearly anyway, For the first 400 years of the church's existence um, you find the Psalms either being chanted or being sung. Now it's vital to note what I mentioned in the morning that the songs chosen for God's book were songs that were actually breathed out by God himself. They weren't good songs written by good people. They were Songs breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God so that they are what we call inspired. Now, of course, I'm sure you understand that the word inspired as we use it theologically doesn't mean what it's meant, what it's supposed to mean culturally. For example, we say that a person is inspired if he comes up with something extraordinary. Oh, well, he was inspired or she was inspired. Inspiration has a, a far more precise meaning than that. It means something that is actually God-breathed, inerrant and infallible, the very word of God. In other words, if something is genuinely inspired, it merits being inside the Bible. It is an infallible statement direct from God through his prophets. And the fact is that the songs chosen for the Psalter were in that category. Every single writer of a psalm is described in the bible as being a prophet or a seer a seer is just an alternative word for a prophet and that sets the precedent you see that the worship songs of the church must be holy spirit given they are not to be the product of even good men's thoughts but actually holy spirit authored that's why we saw in the morning when hezekiah was reforming the church he brought the songbook back, the songs of David and of Asaph. And even in Christ's own day, the songs that were being sung were the songs that the Spirit had breathed. Um, After the exile, there were a few psalms given. In other words, um, when they returned from Babylon, when God raised up a couple of prophets, you remember that he raised up Haggai and Zechariah, They're called the prophets of the restoration because it was they who encouraged the people to rebuild the temple and to restore Jerusalem. At that point, God inspired a few new songs as well. But the canon was then closed by Ezra, and for 400 years, no more songs. So the songs our Lord sang and the apostles were the songs that we sing too the songs in God's songbook. But of course, all that changed, and we have to face the fact that it changed. We have to ask, I suppose, why it changed. I think there are two points in history when it changed significantly. First of all, around 400 AD, the psalms that were identified with heretical groups, the hymns that were composed by them, gradually came in and other people, good people, began to compose songs that came to be introduced into the church. Sometimes when people wrote a song, they didn't mean it to be introduced into the church, but it gradually came to be. And then again, in the 1800s, after the Reformation had purged away uh, non-inspired hymns, purged them out, in the 1800s, they crept back in, first of all in America, and then in the UK itself. If you're to ask why that happened, I think the answer to that is quite simple, or at least the general answer to that is quite simple. It's spiritual declension. That's what always moves a church away from the Psalter onto human songs. It is spiritual declension. And in the 4th century, it's not surprising. I mean, by the end of the 4th century, you have the mystery of iniquity already beginning to work within the church the man of sin exalting himself. You have the rise of the papacy, the rise of superstition, and the rise of works, religion. So it's no surprise that error begins to enter into the church of God through her songbook. It's far easier for the devil to put error in through a songbook than actually anywhere else. And after the Reformation, the Same thing happened too. Um, Long after the Reformation, in the 1800s, when liberal theology began to get a hold and people began to shift away from the Psalms. Declension. The Scottish churches saw it. The American churches saw it. Eventually, the Psalms were pretty much expelled from most Reformed churches. And it happened in the space of, I don't know, what, about 70-odd years? The Reformed churches moved from being exclusive Psalm singing to being more or less entirely hymn singing. Now, if you were to ask um, what were the particular reasons for it, I think, again, you have to make a few distinctions. There's first the fact that there was a, a change in people's attitude to the Psalms. Now, that is very closely connected to what I mentioned a minute ago. In fact, it's an aspect of it, spiritual declension. Their view of the Psalms themselves changed. In other words, people fell out of sympathy with what they were singing. Now, I've been aware of this over recent years, that uh, quite often people who say they want to sing other songs tend to slip in things like, well, we don't want to sing about um, putting to death God's enemies, or uh, triumphing over them in war, or uh, shedding blood, or things of that kind. they, They have fallen out of sympathy with the theology of the Psalter, particularly the wrath of God and the judgment of God. That is why you often find that churches which don't sing psalms at all sing songs that never really mention these things. Pick up their songbook yourself. I remember once when I was on holiday picking up a songbook like this that had over, I think it was over 600 songs, couldn't find the judgment of God in one of them. So it indicates a theological shift. Of course, that indicates a theological drift and a spiritual drift. What that really says is that Your view of God himself is changing. And it's not just the Psalms that you find objectionable. It's actually God. With it, there will be a difficulty with the doctrine of hell, the attendant doctrines of judgment, and so on. It all goes. It's part of the same thing. The second problem, and here is where many conservative people are at fault, the second problem was what I would call a false conservatism. Some people were too keen on holding on to exactly what they had in the precise form in which they always had it. I remember reading a few years ago about one of the large American churches that was exclusive psalm singing, the United Presbyterian Church of North America. It was the largest psalm singing church. And when it shifted away from psalm singing, which it did very quickly, one of the big arguments used was the fact that the music was so predictable, that the tunes were so simplistic, too many very simple common meter tunes, and uh, it it just couldn't compete with the musical renaissance that was happening elsewhere. To be truthful, they had a point. They had a point. We are definitely, as a people, more musically literate than previous generations. Let that be reflected. All the tunes don't need to be not simply common meter, but very basic in their structure. Let's be sensitive to that. If we have learned to sing, if if our musical literacy as a people has progressed, let's reflect that when we sing psalms to God. And in connection with that, it's not simply the music or the structure, but, to be quite honest, people were far too long in updating the Psalter. If conservatives don't do something, the liberals will. The same thing happened, of course, to the authorized version. People say that the 1611 version is the one that we should use. Of course, nobody uses it. The people who use the AV used the 1769 revision of it which was a pretty extensive revision because people recognized in 1769 that you had to revise it. There were too many changes. Now why on earth has no one done such a thing since 1769? Why still persevere with words that nobody ever uses and that people don't understand in the name of piety? Protestants doing that Protestants, who would have gone to the stake to have the Bible in a language that you can easily read and understand, holding on to verbal forms and words that no one ever uses. Did the same not happen with the Scots altar? Most of the psalms that we sing certainly are still 1650. It's a long time ago. There are chunks of these psalms when you read them, That are incomprehensible. Shame on us. That gives a really good argument to people who want to move away from it. I'm saying it's a good argument, it's not actually. It gives them a spurious argument. But that's our fault. It's our fault. People were too slow to make necessary changes. And that allowed the enemy to come in like a flood and to usurp the place of God's psalms completely. But there were other factors at work, and they're far more sinister. First of all, there's a, a theological argument that essentially goes like this. It essentially says, look, what you're saying there is actually true in connection with God telling us to sing psalms. That's true. And in fact, we shouldn't sing anything except what God has commanded us to sing. Actually, that's true too. But you're missing a very important point, that in the particular verse that we're just going to turn to, God tells us to sing something else. He tells us to speak to each other. And I think speaking there carries the idea that we're teaching each other when we sing, we are Singing is a didactic exercise. We're we're teaching each other. We're encouraging each other in the things of the Lord, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and plucking the strings of our hearts to the Lord. And, of course, the argument is very simple. Well, look, there you have it. You see, that's psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, it's not as simple as that. When you come to a text like this, you're liable to make a pretty basic mistake. We all are. And that's to look at the text through 21st century lenses instead of looking at it through 1st century lenses. In other words, what you really have to ask is what does Paul mean by psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Or even... What did first-century Christians understand when they read psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? It's not what you think they are or what I think they are. When I was reading uh, various papers to do with this kind of thing, I noticed how a lot of contemporary commentators impose a 21st century understanding on a text like this. For example, one of them says in a very scholarly article that we can think of these psalms as being songs of praise and prayer. The hymns would be hymns of doctrine, and the songs would be songs of Christian experience. Another one said that the psalms would be biblical psalms, the hymns would be doctrinal songs, and the songs would be Praise Choruses. Now that's very interesting, you see, because where do they get that from? Why do they think that they sang Praise Choruses in Ephesus? Is that not somehow just moving back from where we are to then and saying that it must have been like that then? Is that what Paul really Meant? Is that what first century Christians understood? The fact of the matter is that Paul and all these Christians, many of them which were Jews, had a Bible and they had a psalm book already. The Bibles that they read were Septuagint versions. In other words, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was done about 300 years before Christ himself was born. Um, Prominent Jews translated the scriptures into Greek, and that's what the common man read. They, They didn't have access to the Hebrew scriptures. They had access to the Greek translation, which is called Septuagint. Christ himself quoted from it. The apostles quoted from it. Now, if you read the Septuagint, if you were if you able to read it, the Greek Old Testament, you'll find right throughout it that the Psalms are given three descriptive titles. They're called Psalms, Hymns, and Songs. 33 times in the Septuagint, the Psalms are called Hymns. Most of the time, Uh, The term is used inside the book of Psalms itself. In other words, you're reading a psalm and it will refer to singing a hymn. Uh, The psalm itself, it's called a hymn. But actually the books of Samuel and the books of Chronicles too refer to the psalms as hymns. That's what they're called, humnos in Greek, which means a song of praise. So a psalm is a song of praise. And in fact, to sing a psalm, is called hymning, hymning. That's why I mentioned in the morning when Christ and the disciples were hymning on the way to the Mount of Olives after the Passover, they were singing psalms, hymning to God. That's why when people point out, you see, oh, well, look, it says in Matthew 26 that Christ and the apostles sang a hymn. You almost get the idea that they were singing something that John Wesley had written or something like that. That's not the point at all. They are singing a psalm, hymning to God. So that's the word hymn. 33 times it's applied to the psalms. Again, you have the word song in the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, The word song over 80 times is used to describe the psalms. I sometimes do it myself, I sometimes say we, we will sing uh, a song to remind ourselves that the psalm is a song, it's to be sung. Eighty times at least the word song is used to describe the psalms. When it's used, it's describing the psalms. So these early Christians are already used to thinking of God's songbook, 150 songs. They're used to calling them psalms, hymns, and songs. And interestingly, in the first 300 years of the church's life, you'll find Christian writers referring to the psalms as songs and hymns. Clement of Alexandria, Philo, Josephus, Athanasius, the church father who was under God, used to preserve the doctrine of the Trinity, Athanasius has a famous letter to Marcellinus encouraging the Psalms and telling him to be so familiar with the Psalms and uh, describing the richness of the Psalms. And in, in one paragraph he calls them songs, hymns, and Psalms. They're all doing it. They are three terms for the songs that God has actually given us. When Paul and Silas were in the prison at midnight, were told that they hymned to God. What do you think they were hymning? What songs do you think they worshiped with? But the question arises, why does he use three terms, though? I mean, why does he say? that we're to speak to each other or to sing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, the simple answer to that is that the Bible writers always do that kind of thing. They use three terms instead of one, especially if they're trying to convey the fullness or the richness of something. Let me take some examples for you. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he writes a very charged letter describing how God called him to the apostleship, and he says that my apostleship was confirmed amongst you with signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, If I was going to ask you, well, why did he bother saying signs, wonders, and miracles? Would miracles not have done? Yes, miracles would have done. In fact, it's quite hard to differentiate between a sign and a wonder and a miracle. But he uses the three terms for effect. When God is giving his law, when he finishes giving the law, he calls on the people to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which I have set before you. What's the precise difference? I mean, you tell me what the precise difference is between a judgment, a commandment, and a statute. It's not very easy. He could have simply said commandments, but he went for full effect. Keep all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments that I have set before you this day. When the word of God is magnifying God's forgiveness, how great a thing it is, it tells us that he forgives our iniquity, transgression, and sin. Here's a triad again. And orators will tell you that triads are powerful things. I mean, if you study uh, particularly powerful speeches, you'll find that they often say a thing three times. That's connected with the mystery of the number three and so on. It has a special effect. What's the difference between iniquity, transgression, and sin? Well, maybe you can try hard to find it, and to some extent there may be a, a slight little difference, but they're basically the same thing. If I was to say you're guilty of iniquity or you're guilty of transgression or you're guilty of sin, I'm saying in a sense the same thing. That may be a shade, but it's the same thing. But if I was to say to you, you're guilty of iniquity, transgression and sin, you'll get the point much more than if I had simply said sin. So if miracles can be called signs, wonders, and miracles, and if commands can be called commandments, statutes, and judgments, and if sin can be called iniquity, transgression, and sin, then why can the Psalms not be called Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Especially if that's what they always call them. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In fact, there is one song in God's word psalm 71 that has that at its title this is a psalm a hymn and a song what else was paul referring to in a way that's the big question can i put it another way to you if let's say i gave you an abound copy genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy the pentateuch I would say to you, here are God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. Let's say I gave you a psalter today. I gave you this book and I said, here you'll find psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see my point? In fact, when you see it like that, it becomes very obvious, quite easy to understand. If I gave you this book and I said, speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, or sing to each other and sing with each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You wouldn't think I was giving you a book of psalms and there were hymns and spiritual songs somewhere else. It's here. God's book for singing. There's something else too, and this becomes a little grammatical, so bear with me for a little while, but it's interesting to notice it. In the sentence here in verse 19, we're told to speak to each other, to sing and make melody, using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, there are three nouns there, psalms, hymns, and songs, and you've got one describing word, an adjective, spiritual. In the Greek, the word spiritual comes at the end. So, what you have is psalms, hymns, and songs. Spiritual. There's a few people in here tonight who are Gaelic speakers like myself. That's where Gaelic always puts the adjective to at the end. We wouldn't wish you a good day. We would wish you a day good. Songs spiritual. Psalms, hymns, and songs spiritual. Now there's at least... A very good case for saying that the word spiritual should be taken along with the three nouns, not just the one. Psalms, hymns, and songs, dash, spiritual. Spiritual. And that raises the question, what does the word spiritual itself mean? Well, the word spiritual is used 26 times in the New Testament. Twenty-five times it refers to what the Holy Spirit of God produces. On one occasion, it refers to evil spirits, spiritual wickedness in high places, which we're fighting against all the time. But on 25 out of 26 occasions, it refers to what the Holy Spirit is producing. Now, is that not clearly the meaning of the word spiritual here? In other words, spiritual doesn't carry again, you see, the 21st century idea of something, oh, a little fuzzy or uh, belonging to the, to the kind of other world or something not material or something not physical. or It carries a very specific idea, you see, something that the Holy Spirit himself again, you see, has breathed out. And here he has breathed out psalms and hymns and songs. Where do you find them? <laughs> there. There. That's where you find them. That's what we speak. And that's what we sing. That takes us back to where we were in the morning. It is always an inspired song. I was saying to somebody recently, somebody who said to me, you know, when people ask me why we only sing psalms, I I often get a bit tongue-tied. I feel I know it, but it's hard to put across. I know that. I'm quite sympathetic with that. But Sometimes there are pretty quick answers that you can give, pretty short answers that you can give. In other words, that the Church of God has ever only sung songs that the Holy Spirit gave through prophets. That's never been changed. It's a pretty short answer, pretty powerful answer. That the Church of God has only ever, up up till the point of aberration, it's only ever sung songs that the Holy Spirit gave through prophets the prophets, and how glad we are to sing them. I must confess that I'm not one of these people that actually wishes that we could sing something else. I'm not. I recognize that good songs are written. Good secular songs are written, and good Christian songs are written. Um, You can have poetry that wasn't even meant to be sung, like... um, A Milton's Paradise Lost, which is quite sublime. You can also sing good religious songs. There's nothing wrong with singing good religious songs. That's not the issue. The issue is what God requires of us when we offer him a tribute of worship. That's the issue. Just like there's nothing wrong with reading the Pilgrim's Progress, but I'm not going to do it here as a substitute for reading the Word of God. The question is not, has God commanded singing? Yes. Has he actually commanded what's to be sung? And the answer to that is yes. You see, and once you've grasped that, you're on your way to exclusive psalmody. So the author here of this book is the Holy Spirit of God. Three terms used to describe the Psalter in all its riches and glory, psalms, hymns, and songs, spiritual. Um, There are no prophets in the church anymore. When God closed the Bible in A.D. 70, uh, I think the last book we could say was written around A.D. 67, 68, God shut the Bible, he destroyed the temple and its forms of worship, including the accessory musical instruments, And the Bible was let loose with the old, essential, basic form of worship, as we know it. No prophets, no new songs, no new songs for worship. It's quite simple, really. But there is another argument used, and I want to deal with it briefly. And the argument goes essentially like this, that the Bible speaks here and there of singing new songs to the Lord. And, in fact, the people who say that we should still sing new songs will say that we have examples of these new songs in the book of the Revelation. There are four or five examples of new songs in the book of Revelation. For example, the well-known song of Moses and the Lamb. And somebody might say to you, why can't we sing the song of Moses and the Lamb in church? Well, there's a good reason why not. Let's have a look at these new songs briefly. First of all, in the Psalms, periodically, you'll find a statement, sing a new song to the Lord. The command isn't write a new song, but sing a new song. Now, of course, I'm conscious you can come back immediately and say, well, how can you sing it unless you write it first? Well, of course, that's right. But who's writing it? You see, the psalmist who says, sing a new song, is the psalmist who actually writes it. In other words, he's presenting it. Let's take, for example, Psalm 96, which we sang. I think we sang it in the morning. Oh, sing a new song to the Lord. Sing all the earth to God. In other words, sing it with me because I've written it. I've been given a song to sing. Now, we have to realize in a way that that was a big thing, you see. When God actually inspired a prophet to write a song for worship, which would be given to the chief musician in the temple, that was a big thing for the church. It wasn't like, here's another song, here's another thong- song, and it's in for five years, and then it's out. I mean, that's basically what's happening just now. There's a outpouring pouring of songs, and they come in and they go, and they come in and they go. It was a major event that the Lord had broken in through a spirit of prophecy and revealed a new song. It was as big as as a new book in the Bible. It was as big as that. We mentioned in the morning how David rejoices in the psalm that he's given in Psalm 45, how he feels it in his heart and pours out from him. It's a new song, a new song. That's not a commandment for us to make songs. It's not a commandment for me to sit on Saturday night and to insert something in your bulletin that you can sing today. But then again, what about the new songs in the book of Revelation or the song of Moses and the Lamb? Well, there's a problem there, you see, too. It's a big problem. You'll notice that all these new songs are actually sung in heaven. They're being sung by angels, they're being sung by the church. They're being sung to the accompaniment of incense. One of these songs is being sung by a hundred and forty-four, thousand of the elect who are sealed by God. Now who they are is interesting, but right now it's not relevant. But the new song is only to be sung by the 144,000 in heaven, and they are to wave palm branches as they're clothed in white robes. Now, are we supposed to do all that? Are we supposed to, are we supposed to do all that? If you're to argue that that new song in heaven somehow becomes a song for the church and the earth, well, I think the clothes do too then. And I think the palm branches do too. So our service is going to look a little bit different next time round. The fact is. That the people who say that these new songs. Are to be sung now. Are making a, a pretty big fundamental mistake. They think of the word new. And they think new covenant. But the new songs are not new covenant songs. They are New order songs. conscious the name new order is the name of a group of singers. That's not, of course, what I mean. Songs pertaining to the new order of things. Not to the new covenant, but to the new order. In other words, they belong to heaven. They are songs that are to be sung when Jesus makes all things new. Think of the book of Revelation for a minute. In the book of Revelation... If you are to ask the question, what's new in the book of Revelation, you'd have to say, well, everything is new. I make all things new, Christ says. For example, uh, in the book of Revelation, where do the saints live? They live in the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. Where is the new Jerusalem located, finally? It's located in the heavens and the earth. Right now it's kept by God, but... It will be located in the new heavens and in the new earth. What name will you have when you go to heaven? You'll get a new name. You remember the promise to one of the churches that each one would receive a white stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except the person who receives it and, of course, the God who gave it. Get a new name. It's a wonderful thing, that. What do you sing? You sing a new song. You sing a new song, a song that is fitting for the new Jerusalem, a song that is fitting for the new heavens and the new earth, the song that is fitting for those who have overcome and who have a new name. In other words, the songs belong to the church triumphant, not the church militant. Our songbook is here. You'll notice, by the way, that God's the author of everything that's new there. Who makes the new heaven and the new earth? Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Who makes the new Jerusalem? Its builder and maker is God. Who gives the new name? God gives the new name. Who writes the new song? (laughs) God writes the new song. God does. He writes songs for the earth. And he writes songs for heaven. And even in heaven, you can't escape the principle that the writer of every worship song is God. You can never escape that principle that the writer of every worship song that we should sing is God himself. Now, just briefly before I close, a couple of things. You may again say, well... Are there not a few songs in the New Testament that maybe we could be singing? Like, for example, Mary's song, the Magnificat, or Elizabeth's song, or Zechariah's song, before the, or after the birth of John the Baptist. Well, let me say a couple of things about that. First of all, although these songs appear in the New Testament, you'll notice they appear in the first pages of the New Testament. And you'll notice that they breathe out an Old Testament air. John the Baptist himself was the last of the Old Testament prophets, not the first of the New Testament ones. Read Matthew 11, and you'll see that that's the case. He's the, he's the end of the Old Testament. I'm conscious his story is at the beginning of the New Testament, but he's the end of the Old Testament. And if you read the songs of Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, they add nothing in content to what we already have in the Psalms. In fact, they're identical pretty much to the Psalms anyway. The second thing I would say to them is that they're not songs. They're called songs all the time by people, but they're not songs. When Mary came to visit her sister Elizabeth, she didn't put her head round the door and burst into singing. We're told that she spoke the following words. Sechariah spoke the following words. And Elizabeth spoke. They are poetic. But they're not songs. And the canon of God's word for singing wasn't open to include them. People seem to want to find these things to sing. That's really not why they were given to us. At all, People too might say to you, oh well, but do we not have little fragments of songs here and there in the Bible? For example, some people say that Philippians 2 verse 5 is a song where it speaks about Jesus being in the form of God, taking on himself the form of a servant and so on. Because of the way it's written, it's quite poetic. They'll say the same about part of Colossians 1 and the end of Timothy chapter 3. But why, when a writer writes something poetic, do we have to insist that it's a song sung by Christians? If these were extracts of songs, for which there's no evidence, by the way, right? None at all. If there were extracts of songs, where are the songs? Like I said in the morning, um, if these were apostolic songs that had the apostolic blessing and were being sung in apostolic churches, where are they? Where are they? It's astonishing how copious literature endures from the early Christian writers, but not inspired songs supposedly that the apostles gave and quoted in their own letters. No. We're back where we started. God's command for worship is his own songs written by his own prophets and not by Ourselves. And sometimes you just have to shut your ears to what people say. Like they say, oh, well, you read a psalm there, for example, Psalm 78, and it's recounting the history of Israel in the wilderness. Is, is that for us? Yes. Are you not a student of church history? Do you not want to discover what Israel did in the wilderness? Do you, want to, do you not want to discover what they did wrong and how, how it was put right? Do you really not want to know? Is the story of Israel not your story? Are you not Israel? Are you not the church of God? Are you not princes with God? Do you not want to discover the life of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob? Are they not your forefathers? Are you not their sons and daughters? Of course. And you see, when we sing these things, better still, I shouldn't say better still, but if we learn them as well as singing them, it would enrich our spiritual lives dramatically. And churches that move away from singing these songs lose a huge part of their ecclesiastical history. Our church, our church doesn't go back to 1690. It doesn't even go back to 33 AD. It goes right back into the wilderness and beyond that too. You can't even be sidetracked by other questions like, well, does that mean that people who sing hymns are never heard or that they're not accepted or, or whatever it is? You can't be sidetracked by these questions too. They're valid enough in their own way. But the rule of faith is what does God say? I mean, where do you go with that kind of argument anyway? I mean, sup- suppose people start drinking all kinds of juice or something, instead of the Lord's Supper, and they sit and discriminate. At what point does it cease to be what God commands? I don't know. I mean, cease to be God accepts. I don't know. It's not for me to say. I'm not judge and jury of the heart. I don't know at what point God says I'm not accepting that, but neither do I want to run the risk. It's not up to me to say, well, I'll experiment with this and see if God strikes me down with lightning. I mean, what a fool, and worse than a fool I'd be. Our rule is the scripture, the only rule which God has given to direct us how to glorify and enjoy Him forever. So don't be embarrassed by this verse. I remember someone saying to me years ago, How can you, how can you actually read a verse like this, which tells us to speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make melody uh, in your heart to the Lord? Well, it's quite easy, really. We pluck the strings of our hearts because we are the instrument now that God himself plays. We do so because the temple has passed by and we still sing these songs that the Spirit has breathed forth. Psalms, hymns, and songs. Far from being embarrassed, I'm glad we have it. And I hope you are too. And I hope you're never embarrassed by it. And I hope you'll always commend it. God wants it, and God is pleased with it. Let us pray. Eternal God, we pray uh, to sing wholeheartedly and to recognize that there is a depth, a fullness and richness in your words that are beyond what we can write. And we are thankful that we constantly discover new things in what the prophets have written to be sung. And we pray as you opened your glory in the Psalms to the two on the way to Emmaus that you would do the same for ourselves so that each time we come to sing them we see something new in them. Something of our Lord who sang them himself, and who wrote them himself. We pray that you would bless us, each one, and help us to lead other people to this truth too, people who perhaps have never sung the Psalms or have perhaps never realized that the Psalms were supposed to be sung in the first place. We pray to introduce them to the riches that they contain. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's uh, close uh, singing again in the uh, same psalm, 119, page 404, verse 52. Page 404. Uh, we sing to the tune St. Andrew, verse 52 Thy judgments are righteous, O Lord. Which thou of old forth gave, I did remember, and myself by them comforted have. Horror took hold on me because ill or evil men thy law forsake. And and listen to this especially. I in my house of pilgrimage thy laws my songs do make. Now notice that, notice Notice how he resolves to sing the law of God. It's an interesting perspective on a psalm, especially this psalm, which is all about singing God's word. So in the house of my pilgrimage, my songs are your laws. Thy name by night, Lord, I did mind, and I have kept thy law. And this I had because thy word I kept and stood. In awe. And when we really encounter God in the Psalms, they do produce awe in the heart. Let's stand and sing these last three stanzas.